Well, hey, everyone, this is Lisa Anderson, and I know that top of mind for you right now is what am I going to get boundless for Christmas? Okay, be thinking about that because I know that we are on your Christmas list. Um, Okay, but here's an idea for you. As we finish out this year, we would love if you would consider giving a gift to Boundless. And the good news is we have a very generous donor who has agreed to match every gift that is given to us. And so you have the opportunity to go to Boundless.org. Just click on the donate button right there. You'll have an opportunity to give and that gift will be matched as part of our year end campaign. So you know you love Boundless. You know that we're part of your life. You know that we will be next year. And so go to boundless.org, click on donate, give a gift, and it is uh, very much your way of saying Merry Christmas to us, and we have the opportunity to serve you in the new year. Thanks, everyone, in advance. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you, wishing you a very Merry Christmas as we head into Christmas and the Christmas weekend. I don't know how many of you have already heard the furor around um, our church is going to be open on Sunday to go um, attend for Christmas and are people going to be there? And let me just say, put in my two cents, go to church on Christmas, people. Um, Hello, this holiday is about Jesus. So what better time to be in church? So I know some of you guys don't want to listen to my advice sometime, but I think that's a great piece of advice. So just do it. Plan it right now. All right. Later on in the show for our inbox, we have a listener who's wondering, is going through a breakup necessary in order to find your spouse? Like, is that a rite of passage or a something that is kind of like a learning experience that everyone should experience? Um, she doesn't want to date because of the way she's seen breakups happen to her friends. And so I'm going to weigh in on that question. And then for our culture segment, author Tim Challies is back for part two of our discussion with him about why Walking through grief after the loss, in his case, of his son and such uh, compelling lessons that he learned through that. A great story on grief and what it means uh, in light of God's will, God's sovereignty. It will really encourage you. So make sure you pick up on that for week two. Okay, for our roundtable today, we are going to have a conversation with three of our dear friends. We have Georgia, Emerson, and John. Hey, y'all. Hey. Hello. Hello, hello. hello. Um, We're going to have a conversation on sharing your faith, both on social media and in real life. And this is so weird. I mean, it's not like we have tons of grandmas and grandpas listening, but I'm sure that if they are trying to understand their young adult grandkids, They're probably like, why is this sharing your faith on social media even a thing? The fact that we have to distinguish it nowadays is so weird. But for those of you that are digital natives, um, this is a thing. And we know that a lot of people share a lot about themselves on social. And so it does bear mentioning. So we want to have this conversation just to talk about, I mean, we know that there are You know, we've talked in past shows about just generally speaking, virtue signaling, like people who just want to randomly share some socially accepted opinion on some kind of a a value or, or something, and then everyone chimes in on it. Well, 
We know that to share our faith, um, Scripture confirms for us that we can be and will be hated for that. Uh, with, when the world does that, they're not hating us. They're hating Christ himself. Mm-hmm. I want to have a conversation just around, like, practically speaking, how do we share of ourselves? How do we share the truth? How do we live this out? How do we love people in the midst of this? And so let's go ahead and start chatting. So what would you guys say, like, in your past experience or kind of where you are right now, who are the toughest people in your life to really express your faith towards? I mean, strangers, family, certain groups, um, friends, others, what does it look like for you? Growing up in the Southeast, it's assumed that almost everybody is a Christian. Hmm. And so you've probably heard the phrase when describing the Bible Belt, church on every street corner. Mm -hmm. That's actually not an exaggeration. That is real in the Southeast where I grew up. And so even if you're just in conversations with everybody, it's kind of rare that most of the time you're actually going to encounter people who would not profess to be Christians. So sometimes even in my extended family, I find it pretty tough just because it's almost taken for granted. Yeah, you're a Christian. We might pray before meals and therefore I'm a Christian or I go to church on Easter. Therefore I'm a Christian. So, uh, family and then people back home. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. For me, I, I totally agree. I think it's family. Um, although I didn't grow up in the Bible belt, family is just one of the tougher ones to share my faith with, uh, especially older family members. Um, so if it's an uncle or a grandma, uh, there's something about being younger, uh, being younger in the family that I feel less qualified or uh, less able to share my faith with them uh, or that my viewpoint isn't as considered because I haven't lived as much life as them. So I'd say older family specifically, but also that family aspect, that tie that I'm going to see you at every Christmas or every Thanksgiving after this. So just am I going to open this up? Am I going to start this conversation with my family members and potentially make this into something big? The hope is yes, but I think the worry is also great. Yeah, I would actually say I think it's harder for me to share it with my friends just because I think with family, their blood, and um, I think there is a just a sense of like I really care about them and I want them to know Jesus. So I think that's a little easier for me. And I think they're always going to love you. Whereas your friends, if they disagree with you or um, you offend them, they can cut it off and that's that. And then you've kind of lost your ability to witness to them if um yeah if it if it's just shared in a way that they disagree with or yeah if they just feel hatred towards your faith so i would say friends because they're just you can lose them yeah i would say for me in the context of family it's often when i'm trying to share elements of my faith or just straight up share the gospel and i'm kind of the only one in my family willing to do it even though others are believers and then i just feel like a lone ranger and i'm kind of the holy roller (laughs) and it's like i'm always interjecting something or trying to be real about something and everyone else is just like yeah let's just have dessert okay whatever Mm -hmm. um i think that's tricky and then too i definitely have had difficult conversations with friends who are extremely knowledgeable about arguments against Christianity and who always want to turn a conversation about faith into something else, whether it's social issues. I mean, all of a sudden we're on evolution or we're on LGBT issues or we're on, you know, and it just becomes some like ancillary conversation that can get pretty heated and and pretty um, argumentative, I think. And I, I never want to go there. So yeah, so it is hard. I mean, we're we're saying that, man, when we bring this into real time and real space, it can be 
it can be tricky. So now how do you know, I mean, what does it look like for you to, um, what's a the way that you most often try to seed conversations with your faith and make it real and actually talk about real stuff instead of just kind of getting caught up in random stuff that even could be confusing to people? This is actually a question that I get all the time from my uh, audience uh, with Bring Your Bible to School Day. Uh, how do I start a conversation with my friends? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you can actually take so much from what's happening around you, whether it is Christmas or Easter. Like We have holidays where we celebrate Christ and Christmas, where you can very naturally share with your friends that, hey, I'm going to church or I'm doing this on this day, and here's why I do it. Um, let's say you're far away from that. Maybe it's sometime during the summer and you're just catching up with a friend. I would hope that Christ would be so central to your life that your activities would kind of revolve around that. So you can share that you go to youth group on Wednesdays or talk about the activities you do with your faith. And then from there flow to why do you do them? Well, I, because my life has been transformed. I I actually, the reason why I do these things and they're so great and I want you to be a part of them is because I know Jesus. Mm -hmm. Do you want to come? Mm-hmm. And then and that's a great time to invite them into the activities you're with, or you're doing uh, with your family and friends, and then to start a conversation of faith. Yeah. And we should say that um, Emerson, because you referenced Bring Your Bible to School Day, that's a very specific initiative towards sharing one's faith in the public square, specifically in schools for families that have kids in school, whether um, elementary age, junior high, high school, and a lot of uh, impact that we have there. And so maybe we need to take that into adulthood. It's like kids are doing it well, but what about the rest of us? We're, then we get lame. So, Georgia, how about you? Yeah, I would say same thing. I think if your faith is the the central part of your being, which I would argue it should be because Christ should be the center of everything that we do and why we live, um, then it should be something that's organic. Like I think a lot of times Christians, we get worried that we're like, oh, do I need to share Romans Road every time I'm mm-hmm. interacting with someone who I know doesn't know Jesus? Um, I think it's just more so like sharing different things that he's doing in your life right now or just referencing um, his goodness um, or even just bringing up, I think, especially in my life right now, I know a lot of people in my family who are pregnant and just being like, man, I'm just so glad that God is blessing you and that um, so far that this pregnancy has been great for you. So I think just even referencing God in that way, I think is a great way to introduce the fact that you are following Christ and that you do have a relationship with him. um, And then it can lead to deeper conversations. Mm -hmm. Those are all really good thoughts for sure. And It's funny, before this year, I realized that I was kind of living in a Christian bubble because I work in a ministry, I have my church small group, I have church on Sunday, the conversations I have in my immediate family are mostly centered around faith. It's just, it became so natural. And I realized at the beginning of this year that I wasn't meeting with a lot of non-Christians, and I started praying for more opportunities to share my faith, and God's been really faithful to answer that in just some really, really neat ways. One of the ways that I have found that's very effective is actually to be very open about my own testimony and to be honest and say, hey, here are some times where I was really struggling with stuff and Jesus forgave me, or I was struggling with depression and Jesus delivered me out of times where I didn't think I was going to make it, or hey, Jesus sustained me even after my mother passed away. And I have found that sharing my testimony is actually one of the ways that kind of helps bring the walls down a little bit. Because it's one thing if you're trying to prove a point, but to actually go to my testimony and say, I've met Jesus in in some of the darkest times of my life, and he's been there for me, um, I think is a really just a neat way to talk about how good he's been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. 
Well, let's uh, turn a corner and talk a little bit about social media because we did bring it up and it can often for many people seem like a very artificial environment and it's probably not ideal. Like, hey, the only place I'm going to share my faith is on social media. So people, you better just follow me on Instagram. Um, That can get kind of awkward, but I think it is a great opportunity. And I will say for me personally, I have connected with many of my even like high school friends. And there are friends that I have maybe would not have kept up with, um, but have because of social media. And I've ended up being in great conversations with them, even if we've taken it over to DMs or Messenger or whatever. Um, And so it has been valuable. And so I want to ask, though, what would you say, what, what are ways that you express yourself on social media that evidence your faith and that you know, kind of put yourself out there in that sense. Has it been effective? Hasn't it? What does it look like? Um, and then I also want to ask us uh, kind of after that, what would you say are some of the pitfalls to avoid as well? Yeah, um, I definitely think some of the things I like to do is when I'm posting, I'm just more aware of what I am posting. I think that's the the first stepping point is just being aware of is what I'm posting glorifying to God. And that means the content of the pictures, the the caption. And it doesn't mean that every caption has to be a Bible verse, but is what I'm saying in the caption turning back and saying like, I'm glorifying God in my everyday walk. Um, I also think for me, sharing content about mental health, I think has been a really big thing um, because people who know me have seen that I posted about camp and that I do love Jesus. And so whenever I post stuff about mental health, I think people have reached out and asked questions about what that looks like with my faith walk as well. And I think that's big too, um, kind of to what John was saying, just that being honest about your struggles, I think, on social media is a good way to um, also turn back to say, okay, well, the reason that I'm okay is because I have something stronger to hold on to. And I have a friend, this is the one that I, I think of a lot, and he always asks people every Sunday, how can I be praying for you this week? And I've asked him, like, how successful is that? Do people actually, you know, ask and comment? And he says, um, more often than not, it's people who aren't believers who ask for prayers. And so I think that's a really cool way to get interaction in that way. Yeah, I, I, I think social media, I, I want to flesh out a little bit of what Georgia said there at the beginning. Social media is, uh, it's a tool and it's a space. Um, and like anything in our lives, we should be looking at it like, how can I honor the Lord with this? It, whether it is sharing what he's doing in your life or in your family or talking about what's going, what he's revealing to you, even if it, if you think it'd be beneficial for others. Uh, you mentioned virtue signaling earlier, right? There's a point where it can become pride, where it's like, I'm just so cool, and like God is so good to me, and and, and mm-hmm. you can really start to make other people feel bad <laughs> with with that. Um, but there there's a genuine uh, question you have to ask yourself: of how can I honor the Lord with this? How how I post, what I'm talking about. I think, uh, as we talked about in the earlier question, if your life revolves around Christ, then what you're going to be talking about, what will flow out of your heart, will be rivers of living water. It will naturally come out. The things you post about, the things you talk about, will be revolved around Christ. Um, so maybe it, it, right now, for you listening, you have to go back and look at, what is my page about? Is it all about me? and, and Or is it all about cars or horses or, or whatever it is, right? Uh, or is Christ glorified and shown to the people that will see this? Uh, will they see that I love Jesus? 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that, Emerson, because um, I think we so often, you know, not even not even intentionally, but unwittingly downplay the role of the Holy Spirit in the sharing of our faith and in the working on people's hearts, because ultimately we are called to give a reason for the hope that's in us. We're called to uh, to live out, you know, to to walk out our faith, to work out our faith uh, with fear and trembling, to love others, to love one another in the body of Christ. That's how you know, scripture says they're going to know that we're Christians by our mm-hmm. love for one another. Um, and so we're usually too caught up in figuring out the right words to say, or have I shared the gospel twice this week? Because if it's only been once, that's probably not enough or whatever. We get very formulaic when I think exactly what you said of like, am I, John 15, plugged into the vine? Am I abiding in Christ because the Holy Spirit will be faithful to accomplish its work in our life and transform us uh, into the likeness of the Son when we're doing that? That's the only active role we really need to play is in trusting God, believing God, staying plugged into Christ, and then watching the fruit and seeing what happens. So, John, your thoughts? In college, one of my favorite things to do was post scriptures. Mm -hmm. I remember one time I posted, because we went to a Christian school and a lot of people were hoping to get married at that time, I would post scriptures about contentment or something along those lines. In more recent years, I don't post quite as much, but something I try to look out for is people when they announce that they've had a death in the family or they need prayer. Just even a simple comment that says, hey, I'm praying for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Having been on the other side of that a couple years ago with my own mom, that can go a really, really long way just to say, hey, thinking of you, praying for you now, and maybe even sending an encouraging Bible verse. As far as ways I'm using social media behind the scenes, I like to use private messaging a lot. I've even had opportunities where people who are not of the same faith that I'm in, where I'm messaging them and using that as an avenue to be able to just get together and set up a meeting. And that's been very effective behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So even though it's not posted publicly, it's a wonderful avenue to be able to connect with people and meet with others. Yeah. So what about that second half of my question about pitfalls to avoid? And really, I guess this could apply on social or in real life. Um, You know, I'll just I'll just start it off by saying if you are because John mentioned posting scriptures or whatever, If you're posting scriptures and then you turn around and you're being a jerk in other things, (laughs) that uh, that just negated your scripture, even if you put it with a great filter and had an amazing background on it or whatever, and it's, you know, a field or mountains or whatever. Um, Because, and it could be on whatever, you're turning around, you're being a jerk about politics, you're being a jerk about some social issue, you're being a jerk to your family and people are seeing that. I mean, again, I think that, you know, we have to be real um, and be genuine in all aspects of our life as that plays out. But yeah. what do you guys think? Yeah, I think TikTok is actually a good example, which I know no one ever says that out loud. But um, <laughs> I think what? you're telling me, OK, dancing with my cat is going to detract from my Christian testimony. No, what? no, no. <laughs> OK. No, I mean, it's actually a good example of how I have seen Christian influencers be able to live out their faith in a very authentic way. And I think that that is something that you don't see a lot on Instagram or even on Facebook sometimes, because sometimes it can just be like, oh, yeah, here's this Bible verse or here's this um, deep quote from C.S. Lewis or someone and uh, some theologian. And I think sometimes on there it can make you feel like, man, like 
I'm not a good Christian. Like I'm not good enough. Like I don't, I don't know all those theological statements and I don't, I, I don't know if I'm living out that Bible verse perfectly. And so a lot of influencers I follow on TikTok, I think do a good job of being authentic with their faith. And I think that can be one of the pitfalls of sharing your faith is that because you're doing it so much, it feels like you're this perfect persona. And I think that can be a huge pitfall, um, both for the person who is saying those things and for followers, because they can feel like I can't live up to that. Like I am not that perfect person. I do not read my Bible every single day. I don't have all of John memorized. And so I think I think that's just a, a thing to be watchful of. If you're posting on TikTok, Instagram, whatever it is you're posting on, just to be aware that authenticity is so important with our faith because you're not perfect. And thank goodness you're not because um, then we wouldn't need Jesus, but we do. And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a Christian in the social space, I think one of the biggest pitfalls to avoid is theology debates mm-hmm. on social media. Amen. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's like a trap, I feel like, from the enemy almost. Like, I, there's a temptation to just engage in, like, this hundred comment thread on, on some post. Mm-hmm. And you know the posts I'm talking about. You scroll past them, whether it's, it's just on hot topics like abortion or predestination, right, where you just want to put your opinion out there. <laughs> Um, those conversations uh, are meant to be had with, with love and with truth as well. Um, but there's a lot of communication that is missed on social media. Uh, there's a lot of nonverbal cues. There's a lot of love that can be missed in how you talk to this person. Almost every time there is a very heated background or there's more than just what you're saying. There's a lot of background story behind it. So uh, bring those conversations into DMs at least. Um, but hopefully into person. Uh, that would be my recommendation to avoid that pitfall. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point, Emerson, because I remember one time many years ago where I quoted somebody on my Twitter account. The The quote was really inspiring, but the person was pretty controversial. And somebody blasted me back and said, why in the world are you quoting this person <laughs> just out there publicly? And I did not handle this real well. I literally retweeted three more posts from the same person (laughs) about not responding to critics. Hint, hint. So Uh um, that was not a very good way to handle that. And I had to, at the moment, I kind of laughed about it, but now I look back and I say, it would have been better to just let the person's comment go because I was reading the other day in my Bible about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And sometimes when it's in a public forum like that, if somebody wants to blast you, like you said, Emerson, take it to a private uh, DM conversation or have a conversation in person. But to respond back publicly where the whole world can read it or all your friends or followers can read it, it's probably not the best way to try to solve an argument because everybody's going to read that through a different lens and many times assume the worst. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because I, you know, again, when we're talking about arguing a theological point or some other point on social, I I don't know about you guys, but I have never met anyone who was argued into the kingdom of God, (laughs) who was like, oh my gosh, okay, you were so hard hitting on that. I think I'm just going to have to become a Christian. You know, I mean, it's not, it's just not 
what the spirit, I think, uses. And what it is, is it's a huge time suck because we get caught into these, you know, vortexes of, of weirdness. People are getting emotional, tempers flare, whatever. And then we have to, you know, of course, step back and be judgy of everyone because these people are yelling and whatever. And it's just like, how is that productive? And so I think it's very good, um, as you all said, to just think through that and, um, you know, put a measure of wisdom behind it. And again, maybe back off and just say, you know what, maybe my time's better spent just praying for this person or these people or reaching out to them and changing the subject and having a different conversation around this. So, oh man, so many more places we could go with this, but such a good conversation, you guys. Thank you for weighing in on this. And I think this is helpful as we head into a new year to kind of be thoughtful about this of like, how is God going to use us in the new year? And for us to be open to that, uh, because we never know what he might do. So thanks, y'all. Yeah, go to church on Sunday. Well, folks, we are here uh, for this week's culture segment. If you listened to last week, you know that this is part two of a conversation that I started last week with Tim Challies. Uh, many of you know him from Challies.com. He is a longtime blogger. And when I say longtime, I mean 20 years uh, now, having started blogging in 2002, also an author. Um, he reviews books all the time. He's a speaker. He's an elder in his church, Grace Fellowship, up in Toronto. And uh, he's also a husband and father of three. We're going to be having a conversation today about his book, Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss, and the Comfort of God. And we are continuing our conversation, um, really walking through what he describes through the book as seasons, uh, the seasons that happened literally and figuratively after the death of his son, Nick, on November 3rd, 2020. Tim, welcome back to The Boundless Show. Yeah, thanks for having me back. All right. Well, we kind of talked through fall and winter last week and a little background of you getting the news uh, that your son, Nick, had collapsed while away at school in the U.S. um, back in the fall of 2020 and how that that shook you, shook your world. I mean, no parent expects that. uh, No parent wishes that. And um, but there was so much um, now that you have penned in this book that we glean from this. And it's you know, it's interesting because I feel like as you write something like this and in between uh, before we taped here, um, I mentioned that my mom has passed away. Everyone who listens knows that my dad is also gone. He died of cancer. And 
um, it is, there are just some things that you don't know until you know, and you've experienced them. Um, but we have the opportunity to put an arm around the shoulder of those who are going through grief or who are anticipating a season of grief for whatever reason. It's a, it's a function that we as, as fellow believers can serve. I want to talk through, okay, let's start out with, um, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about spring, as you describe it in the book, which would put you, you know, several months uh, beyond when Nick went to be with the Lord. And you you went at that time, you went kind of to your, your son's grave, and you saw his headstone for the first time, being able to place that in the spring of 2021. And you kind of had this conversation around the the dash on the the headstone and a powerful lesson that you learned kind of from from looking at that. Can you explain to us what that was? Sure, yeah. Um, There there is something kind of shocking about seeing a a person's monument or gravestone for the first time. And um, it, it took quite a long time for Nick's to be installed. So for a while, we were visiting his grave, and there's just no marker at all. But then one day we arrived and and there it was. And I just found myself reflecting on just a little dash between the the date of his birth and the date of his death and sort of doing this thought experiment to thinking, well, what if that the the length of a dash was proportional to a person's life? And so somebody who lived 10 years might get a one-inch dash and somebody who lived 20 years would get a two-inch dash and so on. And you could do the math. And just thinking about, you know, the difference between a dash that's 10 years long, you know, one inch, and a dash that's even 100 years long would be so minimal when compared to eternity. And so in this chapter, I'm reflecting on, well, what would a dash look like if it was eternal? And sort of thinking in almost a silly fashion, it would just start wrapping around the world, and it would wrap around the world again and again and again. And so when we compare that to our brief time in life here, we realize that, well, our lives really are um, just a, a breath, just a whisper, or as uh, Ecclesiastes says, vanity, you know, just dust in the wind. Uh, they, they matter so much. Our lives are so important, but they are so brief when we compare them to an eternity in the presence of God, or um, if we don't turn to Christ, then the eternity outside of his presence. Yeah. How do we get, I mean, even speak pastorally here, how do we get perspective on that? Because I feel like we're so caught up. I mean, I'm constantly fighting the enemy on thinking that, you know, being so consumed with what is going on here in our life and preserving that and preserving comfort and preserving, you know, position and importance. And it's like a constant having to remind myself like, oh, yeah, Lisa, the dash, the dash. I mean, but our culture is obsessed with self-actualizing and and being something and being important. Um where do you get that? In fact, I jumping ahead, I mean, I remember you in the book talking too. you could speak to this where I think it's in London, right? Bunnell Fields, where you went mm-hmm. um, by the graves of, you know, some of your heroes, really, and being remembered for what matters and thinking that through. How do we maintain that perspective? Yeah, well, we just have to take what the Bible says as being real and as being a better description than what we feel or what we think. And uh, the Bible does tell us that this life matters. We we shouldn't pretend that it doesn't. We can't just 
act as if we're only living for heaven. We are responsible for what we do in this life. It really does matter. But we need to take by faith what God says about the life to come and uh, that it is eternal and that we are storing up treasures here that will impact there and so on. And so I think what we need to do is really put our faith in the future. We need to engage our faith in the future promises and then live backward in a sense. So I think about how the Bible describes our deepest suffering here as a light momentary affliction. And all of us can attest that when we're in times of deep sorrow, it doesn't feel light and it doesn't feel momentary. And really it isn't. It isn't light. It isn't momentary unless we compare it to the weight of of glory to come, to eternity to come. And so we have to take by faith those future promises and then live now as if they're true. Hmm. I'm reminded of uh, so many of our listeners know that in April of this year, one of my dearest friends gave a kidney to my sister. Um, and and so many people asked her as she was doing this, you know, because she's in perfect health. You know, why would you compromise yourself? Like, this is an elective surgery. Why would you donate something? Like, don't you need, what if you're going to need your other kidney? And what, and being, you know, like the mana principle, like hoarding kidneys, I guess, um, you know, and, and what that looks like. And I remember her just saying to them, like, guys, God already has my days numbered. And and quite frankly, you know, if it's his will, I could live till I'm 99 with one kidney or I could get a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, you know, and just her perspective was so encouraging of like, I'm just called to do this. God's telling me to do this and he has my days. I don't have to worry about, you know, am I making the right decision or am I not? Because ultimately he's the one who cares for me, which was such a big encouragement to me. Yeah. Oh, I've, I had a friend who recently did the same thing. And what a blessing to see someone living by that kind of faith. And absolutely, our days are numbered. God knows all that he's ordained for us. And that was something else we learned through this, that if God ordains that you're you'll live till you're only 20 years, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it, because God really is sovereign, as we said before, and we really live at His mercy, we live by His mercy, and so we're responsible for the life He gives us. What we don't know is how long it will live, so there's a deep call on us then to live each day as if it's full of meaning, uh, and really to live each day as if it's our last, because it very well could be. Yeah. Well, and it certainly doesn't negate what is hard in the story. And again, it it doesn't, you know, we can't be Pollyanna-ish about it. Um, One of the things, in fact, that you talk about in the book is that, you know, weirdly, for months, you didn't even know what the cause of Nick's death was, or it wasn't confirmed. When you finally found out, was the waiting hard? Was the finding out hard? But, you know, what did you actually learn, and, and how did that affect you emotionally through the back and forth on that? What we learned eventually is that um, Nick died of what they're calling a presumed cardiac dysrhythmia, which would presumed simply meaning they can't prove it, Um, but the best thought is that his heart just slipped into a rhythm that couldn't be sustained, and then he went into cardiac arrest, and since there wasn't the appropriate equipment in the the field where they were playing a game, uh, there was nothing that could be done to restart it. And um, I think that knowledge, well, it was scary on the one hand because we didn't know if maybe there was something genetic, something someone else in the family could have, and that was a time of very uh, deep fear 
in a sense. And eventually uh, we had genetic testing done and that took some time and the results came back. And as far as they can tell, there's no greater likelihood that any of the rest of us in the family will will suffer from it. Um, But they honestly just don't know. So there's a lot of fear. But then also just a sense of God is so strong and God is so powerful and his his plans and purposes are so far beyond what we can imagine. And so it was God's will that, that Nick would live just this short life. And all we could do really was marvel and just say, okay, we're going to trust God with this. And, and we're just going to believe that he's done best. And even if we don't see it now, even if we don't fully understand it now, we're choosing to believe that, that God's will is, is good and that we have no, no ability then or there's no way we can shake our fists at the sky, no way we can hold it against God or act as if we had a better plan for Nick's life. Yeah. Well, speaking of plans, one thing uh, that we hadn't mentioned yet uh, last week or this week is that when Nick died, he was engaged to be married. You mentioned his fiance last week briefly, but so then we're in spring and you come around to the date of May 8th, 2021, the day that was supposed to be his wedding day. I mean, I think that's one of the hardest things of loss and of, you know, like I said, counting days and what that looks like to realize that there are things on the calendar. There were hopes, there were dreams, um, you know, the day that he was meant to be married and you and you and your wife did did something pretty special. I would love for you to just share that story and what, you know, how even I mean, now we're talking what six months out, there were still intense feelings of, of loneliness that you had to process in on that day. Mm-hmm. So the day Nick would have been married was hard because in a sense, it represented the future. It represented things that would never be. And so it's hard when his birthday comes around and you just think back to all those years of celebrating with him and think back to the day he was born. And, and that's very difficult. But that's, that's in the past. His wedding date was going to be his future. And that day never came or the day came, but he was gone. And so it was so hard then just to have to grapple with, with that reality. And so on that day, we, we went to the cemetery, just Aileen and myself, and we're really just absolutely heartbroken and really even unable to, to speak much, much at all. So we just stood by the grave crying. And, um, then we heard somebody speak my name turned around and it, uh, turns out there's a, a couple from near here, I guess, who were, their, their son was buried a few rows over and they just happened to be visiting on that day and at that time. And they, they saw us there and they made their way over and they just encouraged us. Really what they did was they prayed for us. And here are people who understood, people who have been where we are, people who know that sorrow, know that loss. And that sorrow, that loss had equipped them then to minister to us on this day when we were so heartbroken. And so God just so perfectly arranged it. We, we talk sometimes about miracles. This wasn't a miracle. This was something even better. God had meticulously arranged circumstances so that they would be there and we would be there at the same time so they could come over to us and they could minister truth to us and pray for us. And it was just so precious and so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that's just amazing to see. It's like that. It's just that touch. You know, like you said, you you could barely even speak showing up there. I know you mentioned in the book that you brought a boutonniere from the florist um, to to put there at the, the graveside. Um, just such a, a precious memory and precious moment. 
Um, it brings me to a question about, uh, you know, I would love to know your thoughts on the role of community in grief. Obviously, this couple showed up unexpected in that moment. But what about your church family? What about friends? What about um, what did it look like to have that kind of presence? And was there awkwardness in it? Was it I mean, is it is it still going on? How has the church showed up for you, um, both in the initial season and even now continuing on two years later? In the initial season, we have to remember this was mid-COVID pandemic. I live in Canada where um, it was a little bit stricter or quite a bit stricter than it was for those who are in America. And so um, when we we got back from Louisville, at first we were confined to the house, nobody allowed on the property for two weeks under pain of penalty, etc. And so um, it was very hard for people to minister to us and hard for us to receive that simply because of the, the, the circumstances. But uh, the church really did show up as best as they were able, and as time has gone on, even more so. They've, been, they've taken very good care of us and loved us well. And, you know, one of the things we did was um, on a, one of the first Sundays we were at church, we stood in front of everybody, and we just thanked them for their love and care. And then we said, we want you to talk about Nick. You all, you all knew him. He was a friend to you. He was a son of this church. And we want you to keep talking about him. So we don't want you to think you're going to make us sad. We're already sad. Just talk, share memories, tell us how you loved him. And that would be so so precious and meaningful to us. And I think that freed people then not from some of that awkwardness. And, of course, as time has gone on, people have, um, you know, people get on with life, and that's fine. We don't need that same level of care. But it's still very meaningful, and people share memories and even just ask, well, it's been a couple of years. How are you doing? How, how have things changed? in the last little bit. And uh, I do want to say one more thing, which is our neighbors, um, not believers, our neighbors were so kind to us as well and really challenged us to think that I think a lot of what we do as Christians, we do not necessarily because we're Christian, but because we're human and God has made us in his image. And so we do often reach out and care for other people. And our, our neighbors were so good to us, took such good care of us and really loved us well. Hmm. I think in in saying that, it it would be interesting to get your take, um, because again, you know, community is so important. What would you say, Tim, to specifically the men listening, um, men in grief, like help the men listening understand? Because I think sometimes it's it's so easy for women to know where to run to and women to express emotion and feel like they're doing it appropriately. And and sometimes guys feel like, I don't really know where to go with this, or I don't know what, what should this look like? Or is this quote unquote too much? Or what am I, you know, what would you say? What were you surprised by? Or what would be your encouragement to men as they walk through a season like this? I guess I would, I would tell men to try to reach out to at least one other man or maybe a couple. And there's not many men who have a really wide friend network. Most of us have a couple good friends and that is just a tremendous blessing. It's all we need. But to have those men available to you and to, to do your best to speak from the heart, to really share what's going on, to share what, what's truly going on on the inside in your heart and your soul and your mind. Um, I, I think as men, we can be prideful and um, think that it's weak to cry or it's weak to share our feelings. But uh, I depended upon friends and was very glad to be able to open up to them and have them open up to me and um, to be able to, to just share my grief. 
And what mattered so much, and you know, I, I talked before about unbelieving friends being so helpful, what believers can bring is truth. And so in our darkest moments, what we need is we need something to stabilize us, something we can anchor ourselves to, and that is the truth, the truth of the Word of God. And so what Christians can bring, what friends can bring is truth, just things to stabilize us and hold us fast. So I would encourage anyone, if, you're, if you have a friend who's going through a time of grief, Bring them truth from the Word. That's what they really, really need. Hmm. Well, as you moved into um, the summer of that following year, you actually describe specifically in the book how the tone of your grief started to change. And I'd love for you to describe how it changed, but then also, did that surprise you? Did it worry you? I know a lot of times some people, as they move through seasons of grief and they they feel like, oh, well, it's been a couple years now. I don't want to lose that feeling in the sense of I don't want to dishonor this person by ceasing to grieve or by not grieving enough. What what did it mean to have that tone switch a little bit, um, even to the place where you are today? It does become easier in time. And when I'm I'm privileged to be able to speak to people who are going through a, a difficult season. That's one thing I try and tell them is it, it's so hard at the beginning. It really is all-consuming, and you really know I couldn't live like this forever. I would I would go mad. I just couldn't do it. But you don't have to. Um, it will get easier in time. And what a blessing that it does. And and what happens is, in a sense, I suppose grief becomes a little bit more of a companion. You know, someone who's along for the ride. He's never going to go away. He's always there. And yet it's not quite as prominent, not quite as pronounced. You learn to live again or you learn to find a new normal. You'll never go back to the way things were. You'll never be the same person you were before, but you will discover a new normal. Now, what we need to understand is that you won't ever stop loving the person who's gone. And that's, that's good. That's a good thing. And so you, uh, talking about your mom being gone, you, of course, you don't stop loving her. Your love doesn't diminish. In a sense, it grows. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, and that's very much my experience with Nick. I love him all the more, and yet the grief really is. It's more manageable in time, and um, those the joy and sorrow maybe achieve a better balance where there's there truly is greater joy again, and uh, not every moment of life is consumed by your grief. Hmm. Well, Tim, I think um, in in hearing your story, I mean, and just walking through not only the details of it, but also the processing of your grief through, um, especially that, that first year, there are probably some people who are listening who are like, okay, well, the one thing I need to do is never experience this. Like they're... They're just like, Lord, here's my prayer for the rest of my life. I don't want to have to walk through this kind of grief, this kind of tragedy, this experience, whatever. But that's extremely foolish and unrealistic thinking. We know uh, Scripture guarantees that in this world we're going to have trouble. Um, we are not promised uh, smooth sailing. And so what does it look like? What's your advice to listeners, Tim, for how we as Christians can just not live in a constant fear of death or tragedy and instead focus on the hope that we have in Christ. And as you said, that that understanding of him having good things for us, even in a sinful and broken world. 
we need to we need to be aware of the character of God. We need to study the character of God. And so even when things happen that are very hard or that seem very bad or that are very bad, we can still believe that God's character has not changed. And so my call to people all along has been to know what you believe before you enter into these periods. So establish Is God sovereign in this world or not? Do things happen that God did not want to happen or that God didn't know were going to happen? Can Satan sort of sneak around God's defenses? Or in some way has God permitted or ordained or planned everything that happens? And then also establish the character of God. Who is this God? What is he like? How does he relate to me? If you can establish those things, then when you enter into this time of sorrow, this time of grief and it's unavoidable. You can't get away without experiencing grief in this life. Then, then you're equipped to pass through it well, because you'll have established that God is involved in this in some way. In some way, this will display his glory. And we know that because of the cross, the most evil thing that ever happened in human history brought about the greatest good. And it's the cross. Even good can come from that. And surely good can somehow come from my circumstances, even if I can't see it or even if I don't see it until heaven. And then I also know who God is, and I believe that He's for me. Fundamentally, God loves me, and He's for me. He's not opposed to me. So I can have deep, deep confidence in Him. Hmm. So true, so true. Oh, well, folks, um, we have been in a conversation both last week and this week with Tim Challies uh, of Challies.com. You know him uh, from that, as well as from um, his books. He uh, he is a speaker. He reviews books. But this book that we've been talking about in this story is Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God, walking uh, with Tim through the very personal experience of uh, the homegoing of his son, Nick, and what... God has, uh, how God has shown up specifically for Tim and his family in this time. So we want to make the book available to you. We made this offer last week. We want to do it again this week uh, for uh, a copy of this book for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So uh, go to Boundless, search for 777, such a perfect number, and uh, you'll see the book cover there. Just click on it, give a gift to Boundless, and we will send this copy, uh, a copy of this book to you as our thank you to you. And so, um, Tim, thank you again so much for being so honest, not only in the pages of this book, but in our conversation today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. My heart knows you are. You're constantly right here. Always near.
Well, folks, we are finishing out the show, and then we will let you head into your Christmas celebrations over the next few days. Um, But in the meantime, we're going to open up our inbox for this week's question, and I get to answer it. So here it is. Is it necessary to go through a breakup in order to successfully find someone you will marry? I've gone on dates, but am incredibly reluctant to date anyone because breakups have been so painful for my friends. I know several couples who only ever dated the person they married, but is that realistic? Okay, great question. And I think it's a practical question because a lot of people are like, yeah, I don't want that part of my story. So the first thing I want to say is... Marrying the only person you ever dated is totally fine. I mean, yes, that is realistic. I know people that have done that as well. And quite frankly, you don't need to practice breaking up. I don't know why people think that has to be part of your experience. I mean, that's not something a lot of people want to get good experience at, quite frankly, like, hey, I'm an expert breaker upper. Um, so keep that in mind. Now that said, I don't want you to be paralyzed from dating because you are afraid of a breakup. And so if it's keeping you from dating people because you are saying, well, I want to script my story in a certain way and I'm going to control it and whatever, well, that trends into other issues that could be problematic. And so um, what I would say is more important, and you kind of allude to this in saying that breakups have been so painful for my friends. And I would ask you kind of like, why is that? Because not not that breakups aren't going to be painful. It's kind of inevitable. They are. I mean, there are dashed hopes there. You're getting to know someone and all that. So I understand. But technically, relationships done right are okay to break up. Um, Because if you've had appropriate boundaries in a relationship, if you've been getting to know someone as a brother or a sister in Christ, and you haven't gotten emotionally entangled, you haven't gotten sexually entangled, you're not best friends with their mom, and so breaking up with them is now breaking up with their whole family, but you have just maintained like, hey, this is a process of discovery of getting to know if this person could be a good fit in the future. You should be okay to just part ways and be like, you know what, we're too mature adults. It didn't work out. We're going to move on. Okay. Now, I remember, though, when I when I alluded to on the front end of this question that you don't want this part of your story and you're very fearful of it or whatever, I was actually part of not a failed engagement, but a failed proposal. And I remember as this was happening, being so discouraged because I was like, I can't believe this is part of my story. This is so lame. I don't want to have to tell people that this didn't work out. But I just knew straight up from the Holy Spirit that I could not get engaged to this guy. And good thing, because the relationship shortly after imploded. And, you know, what I've realized since then is I did survive. And so I have some breakups in my history. I don't feel like I've just been leveled by them. Um, Yeah, you know, were they bummers? Yeah. But did I learn a lot? Yeah. And, And it was okay because I didn't give up too much capital on all those fronts I mentioned before. And so I can move forward with a learning posture and move healthily into the place that I am now. And, you know, you can date with health when you've had your learnings from past relationships. So 
I would say don't be afraid to date. Go ahead, go after it, be open, be willing, um, be receptive to that. You don't know if it'll work out, but God does, and he's got your future in his hand anyway. You, A relationship is three people, you, the other person, and God, and so you have to approach it humbly. You will not be entirely in control. You can use wisdom. You bring other eyes into that relationship, other hearts into it. You have people praying for you, and I think you're going to be on your way to figuring out how to date well and not do it fearfully and not be afraid of a breakup and also um, be okay with finding a person that it might be that person that you end up spending the rest of your life with. But God will help you as you prayerfully consider that. So go forward with confidence. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week's show. Again, this is Lisa Anderson, and we love it when you write in your questions to us. Um, I want to give you one more shout to let you know that it's also, uh, you still have time to give to Boundless here at the end of the year. If you go to boundless.org slash donate, uh, we love it when we can tell folks that our own people are supporting the work of Boundless because you know it, you love it, and quite frankly, you're adults. So hey, um, let's all pitch in and support this work that we do so that we can encourage one another into the new year and beyond and hopefully introduce some new folks to Boundless and ultimately to Jesus Christ. So uh, Merry Christmas to you all once again. um, Great to have you in our Boundless family. And I will see you around next week. It's Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. Just like a warm fireplace when it's cold outside, the joy of the Christmas season gives comfort and draws us closer to loved ones. I'm John Fuller, and Focus on the Family is excited to let you know about our Christmas Stories podcast. Each episode brings heartwarming conversations to bring your family closer together and remind you of the hope we have in Jesus. You can enjoy that podcast at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash Christmas Stories. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash Christmas Stories.